you'll want to take out your sermon outline. Today we are in Luke chapter 1. It's been a while since we were in Luke. We were in Luke uh, 10, 9, and 8 years ago. So uh, we have been here before. The, uh, let me read today's uh, scripture passage, Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. This is the Song of Mary. Please listen carefully. Follow along in your Bibles as this is God's word. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for giving us your word and making us your people. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we pray you would give us understanding uh, of it. Help us to see what you have done and what you will do. Help us to see Jesus this morning and help us to show him to others. For this, we need your grace. And so by your spirit, we ask that you would give that to each of us this morning. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen. It's as natural in our house as cereal for breakfast, and that is the annual family day to decorate the house for Christmas, and the whole family has to be there. We haul up all the boxes from the basement, box after box after box after box. And we put the the tree up and and put the lights on the tree. And then as we hang the ornaments, we debate over where this ornament came from and who does it really belong to. And then after the dog knocks the ornaments off the tree, we put them back on. And somehow it all gets done and it looks great, at least to us. But part of the wonder of that day and uh, enjoying the days of Advent, which lead up to Christmas for me, and I suspect for most of you, is the music. The music of Christmas is forever linked to the season of Christmas. We all wait for the time when we can crank up Bing Crosby singing White Christmas or Mel Torme uh, belting out chestnuts roasting on an open fire or even the Tennessee Christmas of Amy Grant or the jazzy jingle bells of Diana Krall. These are wonderful traditions of Christmas music. But for me, Christmas is not Christmas without the genuine songs of Christmas. And I'm talking about the Christmas hymns which herald the coming of Christ. From the ancient O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, on this second Sunday of Advent, to the joyous strains of joy to the world on Christmas Eve. 
from the hauntingly beautiful chorus of What Child Is This? to the quiet, reassuring German folk hymn, Silent Night. The songs of Christmas reach deep into our hearts and stir believers to, uh, hopefully, to adoration of Christ. And I suspect stir unbelieving hearts to reconsider the true story of Christmas. The songs of Christmas will be my theme for the rest of Advent, but I won't be preaching from the hymns, but from the biblical narratives of the birth of Christ in Luke chapters 1 and 2. Now, there's no musical notations uh, given for these songs in the Bible, but when I read of the spontaneous, poetic, profoundly theological response of Mary bursting forth onto the pages of God's Word, I can't help but call that a song. When I read of John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit and breaking forth from a previously mute voice with rejoicing and prophecy, that's a song. Likewise, the sight of the angels appearing to the shepherds in the midnight sky and praising God in a heavenly chorus is a song of Christmas. And so is the prayer from the lips of a faithful old man who ushers in the new covenant with a prayer of astonishing wonder and hope. The songs of Christmas are still very much needed today. And I don't simply mean the great hymns of the faith, although those are needed as well, but those divinely inspired, wondrous lyrics sung in the dawning days of the church. There was a lot of darkness then. There was still a lot more waiting to do. But what became clear is that God's promises were coming true and the Lord was entering our lives in a way never known before. The songs of Christmas were announcements that God was here. And one of the first songs came to Mary. What do we know about Mary? Well, if you remember, Mary wasn't much to talk about in the world's eyes. She was too young to know much of the world or have uh, actually accomplished anything yet. Most secular histories uh, report that she was probably between 12 and 15 years old. As with most poor peasant girls, she was probably illiterate, and her knowledge of the scriptures was limited to what she heard in the synagogue and memorized at home. From all indications, it was expected there'd be nothing extraordinary about her life. It was expected that she would marry humbly, give birth to numerous poor children, never travel far from home, and one day die like thousands of others before her, a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. And yet this astonishing thing happens to her. She is chosen by God to be the mother of God's son. Do you understand why the Bible says that Mary is the most blessed of all women. Mary was the only woman of all the billions who have ever lived to carry and give birth to and nurse God's son. For that alone, we have to consider her most blessed. Hers was the human face which the face of Christ most resembled. Think about it. Jesus' face could be seen in hers. But before we get too far in today's story, I want to go over some of the background that's essential to understanding 
the book of Luke. Let me encourage you to read along uh, during the week. We're going to spend the rest of the Christmas season in Luke 1 and 2, and that's a good thing to read in the weeks uh, leading up to Christmas. So what's this book about? Luke is the author of this book, the third gospel, and the book of Acts, written as volumes 1 and 2 in the story of Christ and his church. In these two books, you'll see that Luke wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else, even Paul. And since he's given us more of the New Testament than anyone else, it'd be helpful to understand the big picture. As I read through the book, I tried to discern the major themes of the book, and I came up with four. Perhaps you'll come up with different ones, but these are the four that I found. First, there is an overriding sense of the sovereign plan of God at work in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. This isn't an, oh gosh, look how we've screwed everything up. I better do something kind of a tale. Not at all. This is a carefully planned out sequence of events that demonstrates a power above and beyond the routine circumstances of life. Luke was concerned to show us that the whole world ran according to a single plan laid out by God. Second, there's a constant emphasis on Jesus having come for a specific purpose. That is, he is the Savior of the world. Luke shows us that this extraordinary life is not a happenstance coming together of random factors, but it is a life breathed by God. And a life breathed by God is one that sets the pattern for everyone else. The exclusive claims of Jesus as the unique Son of God and Savior and of God's revelation as located in Christ alone fly in the face of a worldview that sees all attempts to reach God as legitimate. He challenges our assumptions. He challenges our expectations throughout the book. And he forces the people that he encountered then and forces the readers he encounters now to consider who he is and what he did according to his terms as Savior and Lord, and then respond accordingly. Everything Jesus does is designed to highlight this unique point, that he is the Son of God, and Savior of sinners. Third, there's a constant emphasis on the gospel. And the gospel is the message of new life in Christ that changes people and offers eternal life. And Luke explains how Christ revealed that the way to God is through the sinners, that's us, through the sinners' recognition that one has to turn to God for help. And then he makes clear that that way to God is through Jesus. And finally, there's an emphasis on the truth. Luke writes so that you can be confident in knowing that what you are taught is the truth. In fact, that's exactly what he says at the beginning of chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. The more we examine the people in the book, the more we see that they are just like us. Their problems and attitudes concerning money, sin, anxiety, hope, community, rejection, vengeance, pride, humility, and questions about God mirror all the same questions we face today. And Luke shows us how Jesus addressed those topics. 
And he makes it clear that we can come to know the answers by coming to know Christ, who is truth incarnate, truth in the flesh. And in such an age as ours, where people struggle for identity and worth, what better message can there be than to know that you can know God and share in his promises? So what's the book of Luke about? It's about people coming to know Christ. And what is Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church about? It's about people coming to know Christ. If you've been here for a while, you know that our theme verse is 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So to sum it up, it is the person of Christ and the nature of God's work through him to deliver us from sin that takes center stage. Luke shows us the sovereign plan of God, the Savior from, through whom that plan takes place, the gospel message that explains that plan, that it's all true, and that those who place their faith in Christ can rest confidently in that fact. So let's turn to the story of Mary. And we're going to start actually a little bit earlier, and we're going to see that Elizabeth speaks to Mary. We're going to start uh, jumping uh, back a little bit to verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to be at to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. We pick up Mary's story with her decision to visit her relative, Elizabeth. Two women with a lot in common, and yet so very different. Both were pregnant, and both pregnancies were miracles. And yet one was an unwed pregnant teenager, still a virgin, and the other was old enough to be her grandmother, yet was six months along. One young, one old, both pregnant. They'd have made a strange sight walking along together. But clearly, they were soulmates. They're both excited at the sound of the other, and they were to become um, innocent co-conspirators in this divine plot to save the lost. One would give birth to John the Baptist, who would announce the coming of the Lord, and the other would give birth to the Messiah, the Lord who has come. Before we pretend, however, that everything here is fine and wonderful, we have to remember that both of them would live to an older age than their sons. John was beheaded by Herod Antipas, and Jesus was crucified by Pontius Pilate. Both men died in their early 30s. And here also we have the first fulfillment of a New Testament prophecy. Remember when the angel Gabriel told Zechariah about John? He said he would be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. And here we see him respond while still in the womb to the sound of Mary's voice. And this prenatal example of listening for the coming of the Lord would foreshadow what John's ministry would be like. John said it himself in John chapter 3, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. 
the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John began waiting and listening for Jesus, the bridegroom, even before he was born. Then Elizabeth speaks to Mary, and how encouraging her words must have been. I imagine the Bible doesn't specifically say, but common sense would seem to indicate that explaining this pregnancy would have been pretty hard for Mary. Perhaps it's because of the doubt, the disbelief, the looks, the comments that she would have gotten that she decides to leave Nazareth uh, for Judea and spend time with Elizabeth. And upon her arrival, she's greeted with words that essentially say, I believe you and you're blessed because you believed God. And I can only think that Mary must have been so relieved. Finally, somebody believes me. Would have been an interesting three months for Mary. Elizabeth encouraging her and even honoring her, letting her know that no matter what anyone says, she is the mother of the Lord. And watching it all is Zechariah, still unable to speak. And we see in verse 56 that Mary stayed there for three months, probably until the birth of John. She'd stayed long enough for the first announcement of the angel to be accomplished, and then she went home to wait for the second announcement of the angel to be accomplished, although little did she know that once again she would have to travel back to Judea to see it happen. It's a lot to take in, and it could have been overwhelming, but Mary responds to all of this in a remarkable way. She sings. And so it's here we come to the Magnificat, the Song of Mary. And it is in the Magnificat that we find the voice of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 46, our text for today. We see the Spirit speaks through Mary. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So here we have this scene of these two women. And in stunning silence, Mary and Elizabeth regarded one another. And then with this majestic calm, Mary begins to sing the first song of the incarnation. And it's a great song. And it's so good, in fact, that many critics have claimed that Mary could not possibly have sung this song because it's too good. It's too theological. It's too full of Old Testament allusions, too poetical, too subtle, too structured, too perfect for a 13-year-old girl from Nazareth. And after all, this song either quotes from or alludes to verses from Genesis, Deuteronomy, 1 and 2 Samuel, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. And the critics would be right except for one thing. 
they vastly underestimate or discount altogether the Holy Spirit who inspired Mary. Remember, all Scripture is inspired by God. This song is part of the Scriptures, therefore this song is inspired by God as well, or it would not have made it into the Bible. And I've divided the Magnificat into several sections. Each is simple, each is profound. The first section tells us what God has done. That should be the first blank there in your outline for those of you who fill those in. What God has done. To begin with, we see that Mary praises the Lord. She rejoices in God, her Savior. She looks to God first before she says anything to Elizabeth. She praises him and acknowledges his salvation, which indicates she knew she needed to be saved. She was a sinner too, and she needed a Savior. And she was rejoicing because that Savior was conceived in her. It happened because God noticed her, his lowly servant girl. Now we see here that Mary is gentle and humble, two words that Jesus would later use to describe himself. She magnifies the Lord because of what he has done in her and to her. And again, this is not unlike what he has done to us. Christ is born in our lives. His life flows through us. We begin to look not only at God in a different light, but think of God more than we ever have before. We see him as so much greater than we ever thought before. And as these thoughts flow through us, we magnify the Lord. We praise the Lord. We rejoice in the Lord. We glorify the Lord. Mary is a physical model of a spiritual reality. She recognized that she was indeed blessed, not with the ordinary blessings that come from God over the course of a lifetime, but with a blessing that revealed God's grace and which would last for an eternity. And she understood that great significance in what God had done, and she recognized his power in doing it. She says, verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. In her song, Mary praises God for many of his divine attributes. She worshiped his mighty power, verses 49 and 51, the power that brought forth the virgin birth. She honored his pure holiness, verse 49, the holiness of his sinless son. She magnified his mercy for sinners, verse 50. She praised his faithfulness in keeping his promises, verses 54 and 55. This is real worship. Mary doesn't dwell on her own circumstances, but she rejoices in the character of God. Mary believed God, surrendered herself to his sovereign plan, and praised him, all without knowing the outcome in advance. At this point, she has no knowledge of what's to come. She didn't know about the miracles and the parables. She couldn't foresee the healings and the changing of hearts. She was still unaware of the crucifixion and the resurrection. All she knew was that God was at work, and that was enough. But she doesn't stop there. She goes on to commend what God is doing. What God is doing. Look at verse 50 with me. In the second stanza of her song, Mary names several groups of people uh, who the Lord's work has affected. She said that God's mercy is extended to all who fear him from generation to generation. Common Old Testament theme is that God's mercy is everlasting. And we see here in these verses uh, 51 to 53, the Lord is especially merciful to the helpless, the humble, and the hungry. 
The people of that day were almost always helpless when it came to justice and civil rights. They were subjected to numerous foreign powers and now found themselves under the thumb of Roman oppression. They're often hungry, downtrodden, and discouraged. I'm sure that many of them doubted the Lord would uh, ever reveal himself to them again. And yet Mary sings not only that he will, but that he does. He has not forgotten his people. And even more importantly, he has not forgotten his promises. And she sings to remind us all that what God says, God does. And he has promised to be merciful forever. And that mercy is soon to be revealed in her son, Jesus, in fact, in one of his first public acts, he brings a message of mercy to the people. In Luke chapter 4, he makes this dramatic announcement. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It seems that somehow Mary foresaw God's mercy in her son. She saw the Lord turning everything upside down. The weak dethrone the mighty, the humble scatter the proud, the nobodies are exalted, the hungry are filled, and the rich end up poor. And the grace of God often works contrary to the thoughts and ways of this world. In fact, the kingdom of God has often been called the upside-down kingdom, and it usually is. And as we look this morning at the response of Mary to these remarkable events, we must accept the essential spiritual lesson of Christ's coming and the gospel. And that is the Lord comes to needy people who are the hungry. The Lord comes to those who realize that without him, they can't make it. The helpless. And the Lord comes to those who acknowledge their weakness and their spiritual failings and their sin, the humble. The incarnation, salvation, kingdom of God, in a word, Christmas, is not for the proud and self-sufficient. They are for those who are hungry, helpless, and humble. St. Augustine, considered by many to be the greatest theologian of the church, even by some Calvinists, so I've heard, understand this implicitly. He wrote, for those who would learn God's ways, humility is the first thing, humility is the second thing, and humility is the third thing. Jesus himself said in Matthew 23, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And that's the essence of Mary's song, that God is great and holy and exalted, and out of his graciousness, he exalts the humble. And then at the close of the song, we see what God would do. What God would do. Uh, Robert Raymond is a Reformed theologian. He called this section of Mary's song uh, one of the great theological statements in the Bible. 
He says, Mary is a covenant theologian, probably Presbyterian. The foundation of Mary's praise is resting in his, her uh, understanding of God's covenant. Listen again. Look at the last two verses. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Mary is remembering that God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And there he said, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the incarnation of Christ is the fulfillment of the ancient promises. The Christmas story is the story of the Bible. The birth of the Lord Jesus was promised to Abraham and brought to fulfillment through Mary. And this morning, that covenant, that same covenant, is a wonderful promise to you and to your family. God has blessed us with the opportunity to enter into his family by trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The blessings are for now, and the blessings are forever. And the blessings extend from Abraham and Isaac to Elizabeth and Mary, to you and me today, and to those who are far off, who will someday hear and believe. Think back to this meeting of Elizabeth and Mary where our text takes place, what theologians refer to as the visitation. And what they shared was unique. These two women were the first people in the New Testament to be filled with the Holy Spirit. These women. They alone were chosen to bear the children of promise. And they were the first to know that God had come to redeem his people. The visitation isn't just for Elizabeth and Mary, however, but also for their sons. John the Baptist was the greatest prophet of the Old Covenant, the one called by God to announce the coming of the Christ. And Jesus was the Christ, the Lord of the New Covenant. And so when Elizabeth met Mary, the covenants connected. And Elizabeth, this older, godly, pregnant woman, was the first in the New Testament to confess her faith in Jesus as Lord. Mary's also praising God for what he would do in Christ. You see, with the conception of Christ, the great reversal has begun. We talked about the great reversal and going through Esther. Well, now it's begun. And the choice of Mary proves that God was lifting the humble and soon he would humble the proud. So her song spans the past, the present, and the future. You've probably heard that before. And it's about what God had done and what God was doing and what God would do in the days ahead. And all of it must have been overwhelming to Mary. She is overcome by the blessing of God. And because Mary has been blessed in just this way, she sings a song of rejoicing because of it. And that's why we're spending the rest of this Advent in Luke, because it's the gospel of rejoicing. The gospel of Luke is a singing gospel. It resounds with the music of praise. Now, what we have just read is the first song of four that appear in the first two chapters. 
It's Mary's song. It's called the Magnificat based on the Latin translation of verse 46. There's three other songs we're going to come to over the next several weeks. The Benedictus of Zechariah, the Gloria of the Angels, and the Nunc Dimittis of Simeon. And they're all songs of rejoicing. One preacher called these songs the last of the Hebrew Psalms and the first of the Christian hymns. They appear only in Luke, which apparently makes him the church's first hymnologist. thought that was a cool word, hymnologist. And in the book of Luke, we find the words rejoice and joy more than anywhere else in the New Testament. We see it especially in Jesus' stories in this gospel. There is joy in Zacchaeus receiving Jesus. There is joy on earth in finding the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. And there is joy in heaven when lost sinners are found. The gospel ends just as it began with rejoicing. And Luke, the historian, is going to make you certain about the truth. Luke, the theologian, is going to touch you with the gospel of God's grace. Luke, the physician, will help you to learn to love people. And Luke, the musician, will teach you to rejoice and set your heart to singing. To understand what Luke is teaching us about God through this story of Mary is really important. Since the better we know Christ, who he is and what he's done, the better we can understand his calling and his purpose in our lives. This mean that means that Luke forces each one of us to think about who I am and what God wants me to believe and to do. And he wants us to see that the Jesus story is not only about him, but it's also about us. And these texts, especially the Advent songs, reveal God at work. And we can see how God approaches people and reaches out in power and humility to lift us up and bring us into his presence. God takes people who are outsiders and makes them insiders, people involved in a relationship with the God of the universe, people who are hungry, people who are helpless, people who are humble, people the world knows as followers of Christ. And when you add that to the Bible's emphasis on belonging to a community of people who've experienced God's grace, who live in a world that does not easily embrace the things of God, who share a unity in the church that he heads to minister to that same world, then the issues of having a healthy relationship with God, of having a healthy relationship with one another, of having, having healthy relationships with those who are not yet part of this community come to the forefront. Believers, people like you and me, are called to live a life that looks to God because God has poured out his grace on those of us who have received forgiveness and new life in Christ. Luke tells the story of how Jesus revealed that grace, died to provide it, rose again to bestow it, and will return to establish its presence over all of creation. And the church, humble and hungry, must show what such grace looks like in our love for God and in our love for our neighbors. And we start with Advent. 
And we start today. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that. And I'll close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we get excited about Christmas. We know that this is a story not just about Mary, but about all of us as well. We know that you came to be the Savior of the world. And so we ask that during this Advent, Christ may be exalted in our lives and in our words. May the songs of Christmas, the stories of God's grace in the lives of his people, people just like us, ring out during this glorious season of the Incarnation. Teach us these things. Enable us to believe these things. Give us the desire to rejoice in God our Savior. We pray in the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.